Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we're talking about crime and whether or not you have been a victim of crime in the last couple of years. It's come up because of Surrey Councillor Doug Elford uh, detailing what happened to him at his house recently, where his house was broken into while he, his wife, and their son were all asleep upstairs and somebody broke in downstairs. We're going to hear more about that with uh, Janet Brown coming up in a few minutes. But we wanted to ask you then for our hot question of the day, have you been a victim of crime in the past two years? Yes, property crime. Yes. Was it a physical harm of some kind? Uh, maybe yes, some other type, or no, you have not. So check out our hot question of the day. We're trying to get a sense of how widespread this is. So go to at CKNW or at Simisara980 and cast your vote there. You can also email me, tell your story, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. For me, the answer is yes, property crime. Our garage was broken into, bunch of stuff stolen out of our garage about, oh, a year or so, year and a half or so ago. And I just, just remember that feeling like you can't believe that happened because yeah, you're home, you're sleeping and you can't believe that somebody was there doing that on your property in your yard while you were right there. It is a scary feeling. So have you had this happen? Have you been a victim of crime in the past two years? Check out our hot question of the day. If you want to tell me your story instead, I welcome those comments uh, because we are going to be talking more about this. So Simi at cknw.com. You know, it's been a couple of weeks of heated debate when it comes to budgets and cities. We know in Vancouver, they had a very a heated debate on the potential for an 8.2% property tax increase that got people very upset. And in Surrey, it was a similar case, but almost the opposite of the situation there. A relatively low increase, I think it was in the neighborhood of between 2 and 3%. But the downside to that being no new police officers, no new firefighters, and that has put kind of a squeeze on the protective services in that city and raising lots of concerns about whether people are being adequately protected. And then comes this story from Surrey Councillor Doug Elford. He says that he was recently the victim of crime. His home in Newton was broken into while he, his wife, and their son were asleep in the home. He says it happened a few weeks ago, woke up at about 4 a.m., heard a noise, thought it was his son, but when he got to the top of the stairs, actually saw a burglar run out the front door. Now that would be incredibly frightening for anybody to see, right? He says nothing was taken, but then he says last week they struck again, this time taking Christmas decorations from outside. And now you might think that when you have that happen, uh, somebody would go, well, we need more police officers. Instead, Doug Alford says this just reinforces his belief that what they need is a civic police force. We're going to talk more about this now with the help of Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm a little good. surprised by these comments because the move to the new police force doesn't mean more police officers the way they're funding it right now. So how is that going to help? 
And that's what a lot of people are saying on Twitter in reaction to this story this morning, Simi, that, you know, how does changing the uniform really change the policing structure in the city of Surrey and the policing model? But according to Mr. Elford, it will change once the city of Surrey gets a civic police force. Um, I have part of an interview I did with Mr. Elford last night on what happened at his home a few weeks ago, the break-in, and why he thinks moving to a civic police force in the city of Surrey will change things. Here's more of what he had to say, Simi. It happened uh, earlier this fall. I was um, I was awakened by some noise at, uh, about four o'clock in the morning downstairs in my uh, in my house, and I thought it was one of my sons. So I shouted out to him, "What are you doing?" Because he's making a lot of noise. And all of a sudden, I heard a bunch of uh, footsteps, and my front door opened. And um, by the time I got down the stairs, they were gone. So I had a burglar in my house. And um, ironically, he had, uh, I guess they're getting smarter. He went right to my uh, modem and disconnected it. So all my Wi-Fi cameras were disconnected at that point. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of a kind of a scary moment for the, uh, myself and my family, that's for sure. No kidding. Uh, did he take anything? No, I think we got him at the right time. Thank goodness. Um, it was. It was. We were fortunate that uh, nothing was stolen that we're aware of. Um, we, you know, of course, filed a police report, and and uh, and, uh, and so. But certainly, it is. You know, um, I felt the effects of that for about two weeks. You know, when you're when people um, encroach on your on your personal space, it's it's just maddening. I have lived it. We feel it in the neighborhood. We see it every day, and we we see the lack of presence. and And we've been asking for many years. You know, this you have to know this is a, an area that has high amounts of petty crime. Like we, there's the community's crying out for for a, a better model, a better way of doing things in in Surrey. And that's really why I supported this budget. That's really the bottom line. I've been. I've been, you know, a proponent of, of, of a transition municipal force for a long time, and I firmly believe that this is the way to go. This is, uh, and and, and um, I feel very strongly about that. Doug, the next question, you know, people would ask you, and I think you'd realize that, is how would a civic force be different from the RCMP to tackle issues like this? How would you respond to that? Well, once again, I would have to rely. I'm not an expert. Like, uh, it's it's really hard to comment on policing. But we said the model has to change, right? And, and, but the way we reach out to the police I, or the chief is through a police board. I think there, there's a better conduit there for the public to be able to address the problems in the community through a police board. So it's really the model itself that I'm supporting. I, I would never knock the, the brave people on the street that are doing their jobs. Never. It, it's the model that I believe has to change. Right. So, that, Janet, then even if he supports the model changing, would you not need more officers to help combat these issues? You know, Simi, uh, l- let's talk about that model that Mr. Elford refers yeah. to. And with a civic 
police force, there would be a police board. And he said that's where citizens can bring their issues and make sure that there is follow up and hopefully change in the community where they feel it is needed. However, I did a little bit of research on, on this. And um, most recently in the last couple of years, the RCMP now actually allow police boards to work alongside RCMP detachments in Canada. Hmm. This is a new rule that's come down in the last two or three years. Prior to that, no, police boards were not allowed along with the RCMP. Now, there are two actually semi-RCMP detachments in Canada that actually have police boards. One is in St. Albert, Alberta, and the other is in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Um, and I also reached out to Councillor Jack Hundile last night, too, because he's raised this issue about police boards with the RCMP. And uh, Councillor Hundile told me he has had preliminary discussions about establishing a police board in the city of Surrey with the RCMP in pl- place. He's had talks with top brass at the Surrey RCMP detachment. Mr. Hundile says Surrey RCMP are open to that idea, which is very interesting. But, uh, you know, it's really not gained a whole lot of traction so far, that idea and that concept that is now allowed in the RCMP. Right. And there's lots of concerns, I understand, about the level of policing that Surrey has right now, isn't there? There certainly is. Uh, under the new model that the city is looking at with uh, Wally Opal at the helm, uh, fewer officers on the ground than, than Surrey has right now. And um, right now, Surrey RCMP has 853 members, just over 50 of that number are assigned to other teams. So Surrey RCMP is operating uh, with top end 700 officers, maybe seven between 780 and, and 800 officers right now, approximately. And, you know, give and take, there's people on, on leave, mat leave, yeah. long-term leave, disability, etc. By comparison, I reached out to the chief of police in the city of Vancouver. Uh, Adam Palmer has about 1,400 officers, and um, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, much smaller community, but in the city of Abbotsford, also with a civic police force, they have 222 police officers. So uh, right now, the model that the city of Surrey is looking at in, in terms of the funding, and things are very preliminary, of course, but fewer officers costing more money than what the Surrey RCMP is actually operating with right now. And I understand that Surrey RCMP also had something to say about this and the recent Surrey budget discussions. Uh, yes, their officer in charge, Dwayne McDonald, yesterday, uh, we covered it extensively in the news yesterday, Simi. Um, he uh, put out... A release, yeah. uh, Dwayne McDonald, a statement, Dwayne McDonald saying he wasn't obviously very happy uh, with what unfolded um, at Monday's right. council dis- discussions at Surrey City Hall. And to tell you the truth, I'm just searching for his release right now. Oh, and I've got it. I'm Here. not able to put my finger on it. Maybe you could uh, highlight yes. some of what he had to say, Simi. The line that I thought was particularly interesting is where he said, it's important that we acknowledge the detrimental effect this will have on our service delivery model and on the health and wellness of our members and municipal support staff. His statement says, The city of Surrey previously denied my request for 12 additional officers for 2019. 
2019, and it was made clear to me that any additional requests for police resources would not be entertained while the city is petitioning the province for a municipal police service. Uh, so you you wonder with that, are we just going to see a spike kind of in property crime rates in Surrey if this is what's going on? And I've been reaching out to Surrey RCMP Simi and Dwayne McDonald, seeing if he's available for an interview to sort of elaborate on on what he meant by some of those comments. I think it's pretty clear what he meant, but, you know, I'd like to dive deeper into to what he's saying there. Um, I did reach out to a number of Surrey RCMP members uh, that I know, and uh, one of the people got back to me and I said, you know, what what does Dwayne McDonald mean when he yeah. says this? And, and let me just read this to you uh, without naming the officer, but it is a high-ranking member of Surrey RCMP. Quote, insofar as the budget impacting health and wellness of members, when we take more calls, but we don't have the members, then that means we are working more, taking fewer breaks, seeing more bad things on the street, and getting burned out quicker than we already are. Hmm. Okay, that doesn't that sound very volumes. good. Yeah, it really does. Listen, Janet, thank you. My pleasure, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown bringing us up to date on the Surrey policing situation. Even Surrey Councillor Doug Elford, who has voted for the police transition, who voted for the budget with no new police officers, uh, says that he had a recent break-in at his home, and he thinks that moving to the civic police force is going to be helpful, even though, as we've been pointing out, that doesn't mean there's going to be a whole bunch of new officers to help out with situations like this. Well, expect some sticker shock at the grocery store in 2020. That is the prediction from the Canada Food Price Report. I mean, as if we needed something else to worry about, right, when it comes to our budgets. This one is going to hit Canadian families where it really hurts. The report says families will spend $500 more for food next year. So where is that increase going to be? And can we avoid it in any way, shape or form? Well, let's find out. The lead researcher for the Canada Food Price Report is Sylvain Charlebois, and he's a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. He joins us now to talk more about it. Well, thank you for joining us to talk about this today. First off, so what are we looking at? When we talk about Canada's food price report, how do we figure that out? <laughs> the, the food price report was designed a decade ago to get Keynes talking about food, not just about prices, but about food in general. And of course, uh, there is a cost to feeding ourselves, and that cost fluctuates from one year to another. So the goal of our report is always to allow Keynes to anticipate sticker shockers. Uh, and, of course, this year was all about vegetables. But next year, it's going to be about meat. Ah, okay. In what way? What's going to get expensive? Meat products, uh, and in particular, beef and pork. Uh, we are expecting uh, beef prices to fluctuate basically because of China. Uh, China is buying uh, beef from all over the world, including Canada. So it's putting a lot of pressure on, on prices right now. And the other issue is pork. Uh, China is actually dealing with uh, the uh, swine fever, which really has forced uh, China to actually uh, calm a good portion of their herd. And so there's less product on the market, which is why prices are going up everywhere. So when you say we're going to be paying more, like how much more can Canadians expect to pay on their grocery bill? 
So for a family of four, uh, you should be expecting to uh, spend uh, $12,667 to buy the same stuff you bought this year, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an increase of about $500. Oof, you're right. That is a okay, big one. But, this is, but the 4%, this amount is actually a conservative one. We actually believe that uh, 2014 can happen all over again. And 2014, if you uh, if you don't recall, that was a year when beef went up 25% in just a few months. And that, and that brought food inflation to 6%, which was unbelievable. And, and you're also saying, though, that in BC in particular, that we may see prices rise even more? Why is that? So BC uh, has a, is an interesting story because, uh, first of all, your economy is doing very well. And that means that grocers tend to, uh, well, they'll t- they, they tend to go with a pricing strategy uh, that the market can bear, mm-hmm. essentially, because margins are so low. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is that uh, British Columbians are known to spend a lot more on on, uh, on food and are less price sensitive as, say, Ontarians. So that's why I think in British Columbia, we are expecting uh, the food inflation rate to be uh, way above the national average. Isn't that interesting, though? Because also, according to statistics, BC has more non-meat eaters than any other province, and yet we're paying more for groceries. That's right, and I suspect because of what's going to happen to uh, meat prices, uh, the vegan rate in British Columbia, which is the highest in the country, they actually go even higher. <laughs> yeah, probably. Now, what about seafood? Uh, seafood is uh, another interesting, uh, another interesting story. But we are expecting hikes of anywhere between two to four percent. Demand is actually pretty strong there. People are buying more fish and seafood, which is why we're expecting prices to go up there. In fact, if you look at the entire grocery store, there's probably one safe place right now, and that's bakery. We don't expect much out of bakery. There's not going to be a whole lot of movement. But everywhere else, uh, prices are going to change. Interesting. And even though on the whole, Canadians, we are buying less meat, aren't we? Yes. So in 2019, we are expecting Canadians to spend $165 million less on meat compared to 2018. And tofu, <laughs> tofu sales are up 25%. So you can see that there's a massive shift between animal proteins and vegetable proteins. So that sounds like it puts meat producers in a bit of a tough spot because, you know, sales are booming overseas to places like China, but at home, not so much. No, but at the same time, I actually do think that the marketplace is shifting. Uh, it's just a different customer. It's not. I don't think a lot of people are just walking away from the meat counter. They're just buying less volume. That's all. But the price is actually not going to change. So if you're a meat lover, uh, you're probably going to be paying more or probably paying the same, but you'll get less for it. So would you expect to see more people probably cutting back on eating meat in the next year in 2020? It's already happening, especially beef. And so what's likely to happen from an economic perspective is that the 
that price fluctuations will only entice more to do the same. Now, I know, uh, Sylvan, as you were saying, you, you do this every year. You've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, when you look back on your predictions, how did you do? <laughs> well, this past year, we actually did okay because we, we actually had um, predicted that the average family would spend $12,157. And uh, if you look at the inflation rate, it would add up to 12000 $180. So we actually missed the mark by $23. So that's not bad. Right. Not so we're pretty, we're pretty confident with our model. Well, your model sounds good. I'm just not sure that sounds good for other people, though, who have to do all that grocery shopping over the next year. Uh, thank, you, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Yes, it was quite chaotic. That's what you heard just there. Uh, What you just heard in the background, though, were the words of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau caught on camera, apparently talking candidly with fellow leaders about U.S. President Donald Trump. I find it hard to believe this doesn't happen. I think the only thing unique about this is that somebody actually caught what they were saying. He was speaking with Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, French President Emmanuel Macron, and it looked like Princess Anne was standing there as well. If you see the actual video, well, of course, this has gone viral. Uh, So it shows them standing there talking about, uh, well, the late arrival of Emmanuel Macron, what happened at his discussion with President Trump as well. Now, his name wasn't actually mentioned, but it did seem like that was the person that they were talking about. Well, right away, because you don't often see world leaders with those kinds of candid remarks going on, that just went viral. You had to know the U.S. president was going to hear about it or see it, and he would have something to say about it. And he did. He called Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, two-faced. Did you have a video of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau talking about you last night? Well, he's too fast. Do you think that Germany is too naive? And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I called him out on the fact that he's not paying 2%. And I guess he's not very happy about it. I mean, you were there. A couple of you were there. And uh, he's not paying 2%. And he should be paying 2%. It's Canada. They have money. And they should be paying 2%. So I called him out on that, and I'm sure he wasn't happy about it, but that's the way it is. Look, I'm representing the U.S., and he should be paying more than he's paying, and he understands it. So I can imagine I can imagine he's not that happy, but that's the way it is. Honestly, is anyone surprised by this? Because I certainly am not. It's not like the level of discourse has been going up or raised in any way, shape, or form in the last few years. There was a response from Prime Minister Trudeau on this as well. He said he has a constructive and positive relationship with President Trump. He says the relationship has allowed them to move forward on things like a renewed NAFTA and on lifting steel tariffs. I think people know that the relationship between Canada and the United States is uh, deep and goes far beyond the relationship between a Prime Minister and a President. Uh, although I will say, as you all know, we have a, a very good and constructive relationship between me and the President. Today, maybe not, I'm guessing. But that's the way it goes when you have neighbors that are that close, right? Good days, bad days. Probably put this in the latter category. We wanted to talk more about that this morning, though, with the help of Redmond Shannon, who is our Global News Europe correspondent and joins us now. Hi, Redmond. Hi, Simi. Well, that was certainly a much more interesting NATO meeting than we usually hear about. 
Yeah, exactly. Normally, these are pretty dry affairs, very important affairs, of course. But on this occasion, we're not speaking about um, uh, important matters of geopolitics. We are speaking about uh, overheard conversations um, in Buckingham Palace and the uh, snappy reaction to that conversation by Donald Trump. I suppose it was only a matter of of if of when, rather, not yes. if uh, Donald Trump would react to this. I think um, Justin Trudeau's communications team were probably refreshing their Twitter feeds all morning, waiting for the bomb to drop. It didn't drop. Maybe it was uh, jet lag, because uh, it would be quite early for anybody traveling from North America coming over here. But by by lunchtime, when um, President Trump was speaking with Angela Merkel, um, he was asked about it. And that's when he gave that statement about uh, calling Justin Trudeau two-faced and a nice guy in the very same breath. So uh, I don't think, as you say, this is very surprising. I suppose the most surprising thing is that um, this conversation was picked up on this occasion. Politicians, I suppose, do have more candid conversations than we see them having. And on this occasion... Uh, they were caught, or at least Justin Trudeau was caught on his half of the conversation. Yeah, and why is that? How did that happen? Was there Were there cameras there that they didn't know about? Like, what happened? Well, they would have known there was a camera there. So how this works, uh, this was in Buckingham Palace in a very fancy-looking room for anyone who's seen the video of very important people there, mostly leaders and their aides, along with, of course, Princess Anne, as you saw there, and other members of the royal family. And this would be the case where only one camera was allowed in from the world's media. And on this occasion, it was ABC from the U.S. They had, they were the the pool camera, it's called, the one camera that was allowed. And that footage was then given to all the world's media, or at least all the NATO member national broadcasters and broadcasters that wanted that footage could get access to that footage. So that one camera was there, probably not with none of those politicians had a microphone very close to them. But whatever microphone was there was close enough to them right. that it could pick up what Justin Trudeau was saying. It didn't really pick up what the others were saying, perhaps because they were faced away from the camera. But oh. Trudeau, we could see his mouth, therefore we could lip-read lip him, at least somebody could, and we could pick up just about right. what he was saying. So he was sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. But let's talk about the overall NATO meeting here as well, because Redmond, it also seemed a little bit different than usual because you had a bit of a testy meeting with Emmanuel Macron, Donald Trump, where Donald Trump was the one who was actually, it sounded like, defending NATO. Yeah, I heard people speculate as to whether or not Emmanuel Macron was playing some um, simplistic uh, reverse psychology with Donald Trump on making him defend NATO because Donald Trump, for most of his tenure as president, has been very critical of NATO and particularly the contributions of countries around the world, which he criticized Canada again today for for not uh, contributing as much of their GDP as the U.S. does to defense. The U.S., of course, spends more in defense than anyone else. And he wants people to up their contribution. So that's something he has constantly been criticizing NATO for, wants to get people, wants to get countries to do more. And uh, it was very interesting to see um, Emmanuel Macron criticize more the strategy of NATO and and how it's going about its business. And then perhaps Donald Trump was just uh, prodded into defending NATO. So it's quite interesting to see him, on one hand, criticize NATO and then defend it uh, yeah. immediately afterwards. Did they actually agree on anything at this summit? 
Well, there was a joint statement issued. Uh, this was uh, not even a summit, actually. It was just a meeting, and I think it was very deliberately called a meeting because it was more of a, a, a commemoration of the 70th anniversary of NATO. It was uh, an event to perhaps just promote NATO in, or you know, the virtues of NATO in some ways, and, and a summit would therefore have to have some very mo- much more concrete outcomes from it, and they didn't think that that would probably happen, and it hasn't really happened, but what um, what was one of the main issues coming into this was Turkey's um, incursion into Syria, right. it's the so-called Operation Peace Spring, and whether or not other NATO members, the 20 other, sorry, 28 other NATO members would support, fully support Turkey's actions in against the uh, Kurdish militants there in Kurdish areas of northern Syria. Turkey said unless everyone else did, it, Turkey wouldn't support NATO's strategy in northeastern Europe against Russia. Well, just at the end of the summit today, Turkey sort of backed away from that and that threat was pulled back from. So that is one potential crisis for NATO that has been averted at least for now. So that is perhaps one positive outcome from this NATO meeting. Did a lot of it, do you think, get sidetracked, Redmond, with this viral video? Absolutely, it did. I mean, it's the top story, you know, not just in Canada, in many news outlets, but uh, here in the UK too. So the, you know, the war war of words or um, between the so-called war of words, at least one way between Uh, Trudeau and Trump is, is is making waves here. It's it's uh, wherever Trump goes, he will say something that gets headlines and uh, distracts attention away from perhaps the bigger issues. Whether or not that's deliberate, well, we don't know, but it always seems to happen, and it has happened again here um, at this NATO meeting. Oh, I think he's very good at that. I think he's very, very good at making sure something like that happens. Uh, on that note, though, you mentioned uh, leaders, you know, the UK it being hosted there as well, and there's an election going on in the UK right now, or the campaign is going on right now, and I understand that there have been some efforts to try to make sure the president, Donald Trump, doesn't come up during that election. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, Donald Trump has uh, been mentioned throughout the campaign by the more so by the main opposition Labour Party because after Brexit, whenever Brexit does happen, the UK is looking to strike a trade deal with the United States. And what is the controversial part of that is whether or not the National Health Service here uh, will be part of the negotiations and potentially drug companies and the price of drugs. Obviously, we know about that in Canada as to the influence of United U.S. pharmaceutical companies and what influence they can have on on the health, the public health care system in Canada. And that is a, a worry here in the United Kingdom as well. So the opposition are playing it up, saying, oh, Boris Johnson's conservatives want to sell out our national health care system or words to that effect. Um, Boris Johnson says no such thing. It's not on the table. And Donald Trump, in fact, was asked about that here and said, he wouldn't even take the national health care, the, the national health service here, even if it was handed to him on a silver platter. Now that could mean anything, but it is uh, Donald Trump is being mentioned in this election campaign right now. The conservatives who are looking good potentially for a majority want to avoid his name being mentioned and want to just hope that uh, perhaps polling day comes as soon as possible. It is now eight days away, and they have a pretty healthy lead and look like. They could be getting that majority that they need and a somewhat healthy majority if things go right for them at the polls to then perhaps nail down Brexit and get it done potentially 
or at least get out of the EU potentially by the end of January. Oh, I don't believe that. For a I'll believe it when I yeah, see well, it, Redmond. <laughs> yeah, well, we've heard it three times before, and uh, anything could happen. It's just, it's so unpredictable. No one can predict it, but it seems more possible than ever. If, if they do get that majority, right. it seems more likely than ever that it could happen by the end of January. We will. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. See, Redmond, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Amy. Bye. That's our Global News Europe correspondent, Redmond Shannon. Lots going on with this NATO meeting that they were having over in the UK. Let's talk more now about a story you've been hearing about in the news over the last 24 hours or so. It has to do with a murder that happened back in 2017. And the person who has been charged in this has now been found and arrested down in the United States. So let's get an update on the whole story from Sarah McDonald, our global news reporter who has been covering this. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell me about the original case here. When was this murder? What happened? So a lot of our viewers and our listeners will likely remember this case that first made Brandon Teixeira a fugitive, essentially. So it was in 2017 in South Syria, a really nice neighborhood of South Syria, cul-de-sac neighborhood. Um, we now know a lot more details about the actual crime and the allegations dating back to that night on October 23rd, 2017. But essentially what happened and what a lot of people will remember would be the morning traffic jams the following morning because... Uh, Allegedly, Teixeira uh, shot and killed uh, an associate of his, uh, Nicholas Cabra, and then allegedly his girlfriend as well, who was injured, and she actually drove away, and she drove the wrong way up the highway. So that caused a, a lot of backups that morning. Um, and it was obviously a big news story at the time, a big news story uh, for the days to come following it. But then Teixeira sort of went underground. He was the main suspect in this case. He's been charged with first-degree murder. Um, but up until Sunday, so more than two years after that night, um, authorities in both Canada and the United States could not track him down. And we now know they did uh, on Sunday in Oroville, California. Okay, so has that extradition process then begun? It has begun, and here's the interesting part, and it kind of speaks to the differences in justice systems, but we spoke uh, with Teixeira's uh, court-appointed attorney yesterday in Sacramento, so we know that Teixeira, Teixeira rather, uh, is in Sacramento County Jail. Um, he has requested and asked to be um, extradited back to Canada as quickly as possible, really? So, which kind of speaks to the differences um, in our justice systems, because keep in mind, he is facing a first-degree murder charge back here in B.C., the property and the house that he was found in uh, outside of Oroville in California, a very remote property, um, a ton of narcotics were found inside that house uh, where Teixeira was arrested. Another man from New York was arrested. He's now uh, being booked on a bunch of drug charges and also with harboring a wanted felon. Uh, so this is likely an associate of Teixeira's, as we know. Uh, heroin, opiates, marijuana, all found inside that building. So... 
what we can likely presume by his request to be returned to BC as soon as possible, in the words of his attorney, uh, is he's he's dodged any sort of drug-related charges huh. south of the border in the United States, and he's basically saying, bring me back to BC, I, I will face this first-degree murder charge. Because right now the DA uh, in California and in Butte County, which is where this all played out, is saying we're gonna we're gonna ship him back to Canada because they have a solid case on first degree murder there. We're not gonna tie up the process of extraditing him with laying these extra charges that potentially they could because of what they found on the property. Okay, interesting. And that was quite a big raid on that property too, wasn't it? From the sounds of things, from American officials, it was also very dramatic yeah. uh, and violent. And, and from what we understand from American officials, Teixeira uh, essentially, allegedly tried to evade officers again. So it sounds as though they'd been staking out this property. It's really in the middle of nowhere. It's on a, a dirt road called, ironically, Weedy Way, because uh, there was quite a bit of marijuana allegedly found inside the house as well. Uh, we are told by law enforcement officials that it was only the house that Teixeira was found in and one other house basically for for miles. And the closest grocery store was about a 30-minute drive away. So just to give you an idea of how remote this area is that obviously he had been hiding out in for quite some time, uh, we do know there was, I think it was 40 pounds of heroin, 26 pounds wow. of marijuana, uh, more than 1,000 opiate-related pills, um, Oxycontin right. products, Percocet, stuff like that. Um, but actually when... Officers tell us when they went, moved into arrest to Shara, he did not go down without a fight. As we now know, he actually uh, got into his vehicle and attempted to drive away. And we've seen photos of the video of the the vehicle uh, that's still outside the house, uh, the property uh, southeast of Oroville Unreal. tonight. It's just it's completely banged up because we now know that he crashed into several SWAT vehicles, uh, armored vehicles that basically had to box him in so officers could arrest him. But they described it to us as dynamic and violent. And then in the past 48 hours, we've gotten a better idea from American officials uh, down in Butte County just how dramatic it really was. And the fact that their officers were also felt like they were potentially at danger uh, during wow. the whole operation. So Teixeira was ultimately brought down by a police canine as he tried to flee on foot after his vehicle was obviously incapacitated by these massive SWAT vehicles that had cornered it in. Right. And I understand that there's been some kind of extradition documents that have been released that tells us a bit more about what happened in the original murder yeah. case. And that's the really interesting part because we, there's been a lot of curiosity surrounding the case itself, the 2017 case, and also a lot of questions. Uh, I know within our newsroom and within, uh, you know, other conversations we've had as well, there's been so much focus on arresting Brandon Teixeira. He's been one of the provinces, one of the country's most wanted fugitives for more than two years at the time of his arrest. But he, the question on our end here that we are looking into is why was the focus on Teixeira? Of course, he is an accused killer. Uh, we know that he shot, allegedly shot and killed uh, one person and allegedly shot and wounded another person. Uh, but we've seen, you know, crimes like that, allegedly gang-related, targeted crimes like that in this province before. We're now getting a better idea of just what the allegations are from these extradition documents right. that have been filed in court in Sacramento. Uh, some really chilling details, Simi, that we reported last night uh, on Global News. Uh, you know, his alleged victim, Nicholas Cabra, was actually a friend of his. He was an associate of his. And we now know that, uh, according to witnesses that were on scene that night, Nicholas Cabra had a $160,000 bounty on Whoa. his head. 
Yeah, and we also found out from these documents that Cabra Teixeira were associates. They were friends. They had apparently been uh, fired on in another separate shooting uh, shortly before the incident on October 23rd, 2017. And apparently, according to those court documents, Teixeira believed uh, that he had been set up by Nicholas Cabra uh, as a target. So this is according to the witnesses that have spoken to police during the course of their investigation. And they also told police, according to these court documents, that Teixeira felt like he had been set up as a target. Right. So he basically arranged to meet up with Nicholas Cabra the following night uh, under the guise of buying fireworks. And of course, we know that obviously didn't happen. And we know that Nicholas Cabra uh, was shot multiple times that night uh, and subsequently died. Oh, boy. This case, I tell you. And you know what? I do yeah. remember that when that happened. And I'm sure other people do as well. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks for having me, Simi. Thanks for describing that. Yeah, Sarah McDonald, our global news reporter who's been covering this story. You probably remember this back October 23rd, 2017, the shooting death, this man named Nicholas Cabra in Surrey. It kind of shut down that whole neighborhood. There was all these questions at the time about like what happened, how serious is this? And now uh, an arrest in the United States that has provided some developments on this front. You'll hear more on global news. So stay tuned for that. They tell us that ride hailing is coming to some parts of our province. I'll believe it when I see it. Or as I like to say, I'll believe it when I'm actually sitting in one of the cars. Now, some cities are preparing for that, though, by setting up their regulatory requirements. And we've been talking about this. We know that the Tri-Cities got together to work on a a regulatory requirement that will apply to all three of those cities. Uh, We've heard, we've talked about what Vancouver has decided to do. But right now, we're going to talk about Burnaby. Because what Burnaby is doing is something uh, a little different. They have decided to approach this as treating all ride-hailing rides, vehicles, as they are taxis, meaning they're going to charge them the same amount that they would charge a taxi, which means charging companies such as Uber and Lyft a $600 annual fee and then a $180 annual renewal, as well as a $510 per vehicle annual license, followed by a $280 annual renewal. Now, that part of it is going to have to be paid by the individual drivers. And if you're talking about all of that adding up to other cities, if they want to drive from Vancouver to Burnaby, does this not mean that quite a few people might reconsider the idea of even driving and doing this for a living? So why did they go this route? Why did they decide to really raise it that high? Well, let's talk more about this now with the help of Paul McDonald, who is a counselor for the city of Burnaby and voted in favor of the licensing requirement. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, you're more than welcome, Cindy. And why did you decide to vote for this? Well, I think uh, ride-hailing, I mean, we need more vehicles on the road. That's a certainty. But I said I, I approved it with a caveat that the rules be the same for ride-hailing as it is for the taxis. I mean, I should, the taxis pay a higher interest rate than the ride-hailing. Um, taxis are limited to where they can go. Taxis are limited to the number of cabs they can have on the road. And ride hailing can go anywhere in Metro Vancouver. And they don't have the same rules. And I don't think that's fair. But when it comes to taxis, is it not the medallion holder or the license holder who pays that fee? Not the actual person who is necessarily driving the cab? No, they're all usually shareholders. I mean, in Burnaby, they're all shareholders um, that have the cabs. That the, You're right that the... Uh, 
the taxi company holds the licenses for their shareholders in that. Right. But in this case, you're, this is going to be punishing to the individual driver who potentially just wants to make a little bit of income. Well, he's got to, he's going to make income, but he shouldn't get an advantage of cheaper insurance. Why would a ride-hailing car get cheaper insurance than a taxi? That's my first question. And two, why should a ride-hailing vehicle be able to go anywhere in Metro Vancouver when a taxi can only go one way uh, and they're limited to where they can go? Right. I guess, Councillor McDonald, when I look at this, I think it's almost like we're confusing the two. We're confusing people who drive the taxis with actually being the people who own the taxis, whereas I don't think that's the case. I think some of those people who drive taxis and don't own them might actually like to be their own bosses and perhaps drive for some of these ride-hailing companies. Well, they might. I mean, it's called free enterprise, so... But But are we stifling free enterprise by putting all these extra regulations on it? No, you're making it even. Why should they get, why should ride hailing get a benefit? Lower prices. Ride hailing, I haven't seen anything there that says they have to supply so many cars out to the airport, which all the cab companies have to do. And they pay a healthy fee for that to be there. It's a large fee. So, I mean, they got to take that out of what they're charging on their tariffs. So why should somebody be able to jump in their car and drive around wherever they want and, and not pay the same as a, as a taxi company. Do you think Burnaby citizens are well-served by taxis? Uh, they're pretty good. It's pretty good here. I mean, there's always times, um, you know, there's, there's wait times, but uh, they do a pretty good job here in Burnaby. We haven't, we've received very, very few complaints about waiting for taxis in Burnaby. Does it concern you at all that maybe this might impact um, ride-hailing in Burnaby, that maybe as many people just won't do it there or won't bring people there? Well, it may. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. All I'm saying is I just think the rules should be the same for both parties. You're providing the same service. How it's structured doesn't matter. It's still, whether it's a taxi or a ride-hailing, you're still using a vehicle and people are paying that vehicle operator to drive them to a certain spot. So, Councillor McDonald, was there any thought, though, given in Burnaby to partnering up with other cities in Metro Vancouver to take a regional approach to this issue? Oh, yeah, we're looking at that. And what would that involve, do you think? Well, we have it for business licenses for other things right now. And uh, we're just trying to get everybody on the same page so it's not all scattered all over the place and same prices and everything else, what we can do. So uh, I know that our senior management team is, is working with the other senior managers at different cities. Because right now it is quite different, right? Because it looks like Burnaby's fees are a lot higher than what, say, Vancouver and the Tri-Cities are going to be charging. Yeah, yeah. Right now it is, yeah. So do you think that might change in the future? Well, I think it's better if we have one license, one for a plumber and a carpenter, electrician, all that. They have a license for multiple jurisdictions rather than have to buy 10 or 12 different licenses. So, yeah, so then if Burnaby does go with that, then can you see perhaps these fees being a little bit lower? Well, I think if we go together, we all have to agree on what the price is, and and that's all. Everything's on the table. All right, well, we'll see how that goes. Councilor McDonald, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you very much. Enjoy your show. Well, thank you very much for calling in and for talking to us about this. That is Paul McDonald. He is a Burnaby City Councilor. 
You know her and you love her as one of the stars of CBC's Dragon's Den. She's also the president and CEO of Venture Communications. I mean, she is the very picture of an incredibly successful person. And yet, it hasn't always been that way. Her latest book is called Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. And what it really tells us is that none of us are too big to fail. It's what we do when that happens that counts. Arlene Dickinson joins us now to talk more about that. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Simi. Nice to talk to you. Well, the book is just amazing because I think I'm pretty sure that at some of the dark points you talk about in that book, you didn't plan on writing a memoir about it, did you? (laughs) No, and it's always uh, a feeling of being a little bit naked when you expose all the mistakes and foibles that you've uh, encountered in life. But hopefully my lessons will help other people to not make the same the same mistakes, but more importantly, to know that there's a way forward. Yeah, you really are very, we're very honest in this. Did you want to kind of lay all of that bare? <laughs> you know, I, I, I rewrote the book a couple times, to be honest, because it was one of those things that as I wrote, I thought, no, I have to, I have to be completely transparent on everything. And, and then, while it's difficult to do, there's also, uh, there's also relief from it because you, learn that it's not fatal and it's okay to admit you're vulnerable and it's okay to be um, prepared to share the lessons that you got from it. So let's talk about what happened. You you were kind of, you were everything was going along well, you're on Dragon's Den, your company is moving along and then Calgary experiences those floods and that really did a number on your business, didn't it? It sure did. I mean, you know, so this, we're talking in particular about one of my businesses, Venture Communications. And uh, which was a marketing firm and is a current firm that I've had for 30 years. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not everything I do, but it was really important to me. And more importantly, it employed a lot of people. And the flood hit. And when the flood hit, it basically tore the business apart because we had to leave our um, building that we were in. We were scattered all across the city relative to where our, um, our offices were. We couldn't work together. We lost clients as a result. I mean, it was just a, it was a perfect storm or a perfect flood, maybe is a better way to say yeah. it, a, per- a perfect flood that actually created a real need for us to reinvent ourselves or or actually or shut the company down. That was my choice. Right, but that company was your baby. Exactly. I'd grown up with that company, and that company was super important to me as a result. I, I owed a lot to the people that had helped me build it and to the clients that had stayed with me through it, and I felt a real obligation to figure out how I could take what I had and reinvent it into something that could meet the future as opposed to be sunk in the past. You know, what I what I really liked and thought was important in the book as well is when you were at that low point and you stopped and kind of took stock of the ways in which you had gone wrong, things that you should have seen, but you didn't. Was that important? Yes, it is. I mean, I talk in the book about introspection and um, looking backwards being such an important point and part of reinvention. You can't, you know, I think it's human nature that, when things go wrong, we just want to barrel forward. We don't want to think too much about the mistakes yeah. we've made. We want to just move ahead. And in fact, I think to reinvent yourself, you have to do the exact opposite. You do have to think about the mistakes you've made and what got you in the, you know, the position you're in. And while I couldn't have avoided the flood because it's a natural disaster, I could have been better prepared for any in- inevitability and been, had the company more ready for it and myself more ready for it. So that, that was on me. Right. And you said you took business principles and applied them to your personal life to reinvent yourself. How? What did you do? So um, we, we did. We used the same principles we use whenever we're working with businesses to help them reinvent their brands and reinvent their position. And it's, it's pretty common. So there's four 
there's four kind of pillars I talk about. Uh, one is being it's counterintuitive. It's, it's introspection, thinking backwards around what you did. The other one is currency, thinking about what the skill sets you have are. What are the what are the things that you can do really well that you can take with you and that you can focus on. And then the next one is core purpose. What's your why? What gets you out of bed every day? What matters to you? And then the final one is context. What's going on in the market around you? And how can you take the things you're good at and your core purpose? and apply them in the world today to make a difference. And so what did, how did you apply those? How did you move forward? Well, for me, it was about focusing on the fact that everything I did in my life had been around helping entrepreneurs, everything. So, you know, we spent our life thinking about how do we support and encourage Canadian entrepreneurs to succeed. And so I had all of these pieces that were all over the place, but I hadn't really put them together in a way that made sense to say this is our purpose. And so once we refocused everything around that and thought about, wait a minute, we could help with capital, we could help with marketing, we can help with um, focusing on how entrepreneurs think about building businesses. And once we decided to do that, it's kind of like when you look through a kaleidoscope and you have all these pieces, but if you just turn it a little bit, suddenly the picture comes into view. That's what happened with us. We went, wait a minute, we have all these things. And if if we just adjust the dial, there's a beautiful picture. But otherwise, it's just a bunch of glass that's broken, right? Well, I have to ask you, though, like, how do you decide what is a winning idea? Because, I mean, you obviously do this. You pick things on Dragon's Den to do that. But how? You get so many people coming to you, probably stopping you all the time. Yes, and everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, stop me everywhere. On the plane, in the bathroom, <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, there, there really aren't many new, you know, brand new disruptive ideas out there. Um, but there are a lot of... Um, Better, you know, better mousetraps, better ways of thinking about things, better ways of, you know, rethinking, um, you know, they call them hacks, like what's the new way to do things that is going to be easier for people. But at the end of the day, you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have a good entrepreneur to build that idea, then you just have an idea. So execution is everything. And for me, it was about, for me, it's always about the person. It's always about trusting the individual. Do I think they can do what they say they're going to do? And sometimes I bet wrong. Sometimes people can fool you and, or that you, or you miss, you know, you, you miss step in terms of kind of what you see. But for the most part, you know, your intuition really counts here. And, and also, you know, understanding who the individual is and what they've gone, gone through and their ability to listen to advice. So what do you remember more then? Do you remember your successes more or do you remember your failures more? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I think my I, I think I remember how I came out of my failures more. Right. I, I think the thing I'm most proud of when I think back on my career and my life, it's it's not that I didn't fail or that I had success. It's it's what I did with the failures and how I was able to take those. And and I think that's what the book Reinvention is really all about, which is how do you take what's happened to you and move forward in a, in a positive way with hope and, and confidence. And so that's probably what I remember the most is, yeah, that was really crappy when that happened, but yeah. I was able to do this, you know? So yeah, I love that you talked about introspection because I find that's something that too many of us lack, right? Is asking yeah, ourselves, true. what did we do wrong? What can I do better? Usually we just, we, we want to blame somebody else or something else. Oh, that's so true. Like it's always so easy to say, oh, it's, it's my parents' fault. It's my coworkers' fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my, you know, whatever. It's life's fault. Um, and that's easy to do, but 
it is very hard to look at it and say, well, wait a minute, what role did I play in this? And what could I have done better? And because all you can control is yourself. And, and I think that is a hard lesson that we all learn eventually in life. And maybe it's because I'm older um, that I can look back and say, yeah, when I think about all the stuff I did wrong, it was really me that made those choices. There was nobody else. <laughs> nobody right. made me do those things. And did you have a moment after the, the dark parts? Did you have a moment where you thought, all right, things are better. This is good. Uh, you know, I, I think entrepreneurs are never satisfied with where they're at. So I'm always striving to make it even better, if that makes sense. But for sure, there's been, in the last few years now, there's been an enormous sense of relief that things are better. But there's always that nagging feeling about where's the next flood? Am I ready for it? Am I ready for the next thing that could happen? So you don't lose the lesson, in other words. It stays with you. That is so true. Listen, Arlene, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Well, the book was great. That is Arlene Dickinson. Yeah, it was a good one. Uh, Arlene is, of course, course, the star of CBC's Dragon's Den. She's the president and CEO of Venture Communications, among other companies. And her new book is called Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future.